Now, I have the pleasure of introducing our speaker, Bonnie. I met Bonnie and her husband, Bob, last night, and it was just like we'd known each other forever. <laughs> I was really comfortable with them, and I know that you all will be comfortable in loving this morning. Bonnie? Hi, everybody. I am Bonnie, and I am an alcoholic, a very excited alcoholic. My, um, my husband always says, um, when I say I'm nervous, no, you're not. You're excited. And this is about as excited as you'll ever see me. And, um, and I'm just hoping that my heart slows down enough so that you know that I can speak. Um, somebody mentioned the miracle of this program. Hello, you can't hear me? Uh-uh. I'm not good with things like this. Help me! <laughs> Can you hear me in the back? Yeah. Good. Good. Okay. <laughs> Where was I? Oh, yeah. Okay. Somebody mentioned the miracles in this program, and I am truly one of those miracles. Um... I have been to the gates of hell. I know what it's like. I lived there a good portion of my life, just kind of bouncing along the bottom. And uh, and I also know now what sobriety is like. And I know what it's like to be happy, joyous, and free. And for those of you who are new, and I presume a good portion of you are, because there's always people coming in, you know, and, and some of you will stay and uh, become some of our elder statesmen. But for those of you who feel like maybe there's not much hope this morning, um, let me tell you, um, don't leave before the miracle happens because you'll really shortchange yourselves. Um, I had a lot of days when I said, ooh, I can't do it. I can't do it one more day, you know. It's just too hard. And the pain, the physical and the emotional pain would be just dreadful, you know. But I kept dragging myself back to those meetings and I followed directions and I can tell you that those promises will come true in your life just as they've come true in mine. I'd like to read a little thing that I clipped out of the paper and it said, I drank for happiness and became unhappy. I drank for joy and became miserable. I drank for sociability and became argumentative. I drank for sophistication and became obnoxious. I drank for friendship and made enemies. I drank for sleep and woke up tired. I drank for strength and felt weak. I drank for relaxation and got the shake. I drank for courage and became afraid. I drank for confidence and became doubtful. I drank to make conversation easier and slurred my speech. I drank to feel heavenly and ended up feeling like hell. And that's the truth. And really, there's not really much more I have to tell you. That's really kind of what happened. Um, oh, I don't know. It's just... Uh, it all started back in a little town in New England quite a few half, over half a century ago now. And uh, I'm the oldest child in the family. My father was a professional man, a great deal older than my mother. And uh, there was not a great deal of love between them. She had married him for potential. And um, they had, yeah, uh, romance. Um, and they had uh, twin beds in their room, and um, I really kind of at times wondered where I came from. Uh, there was never any hugging. Nobody ever said, as a kid, I don't remember anybody saying, we love you, you know. And it's kind of hard to feel like you're okay when um, you grow up with a background like that. They did try to provide uh, a lot of material things, and they did. They did provide those. And I got into uh, feeling like uh, that was an important thing, and uh, I knew that whatever I wished for would be there, but, but there was always that hole inside me. I was always looking for something new to fix that hole there, and nothing ever did. I had uh, an emotion that I recognized early, too. It was fear. I feel it again this morning, but, um, you know, that was there in my early childhood. And anger was there in my early childhood. Um, I remember fear uh, when I started going to uh, a nursery school uh, that my mother thought would, would help to shape me somehow. Um, 
And I can remember sitting up in the back seat of the car every um, time that I went. And, and it just, I was always so emotionally upset going there. And, and it was not a good beginning. And then my first grade year, my first grade teacher was um, came to Attila the Hun. She um, she liked to punish people, and um, and she did a lot of it. And and my fear kept me from the punishment, though. Um, I would just sit and shake instead, and I would try to do whatever she wanted. And God blessed me with a good brain, and so it was fairly easy for me to do that. So I didn't get put in this. She had a bank of closets along one wall, and she would put people in there. And she had like ten ten stalls. And, uh, you know, and when that would fill up, she'd take one out and put another one in, you know. And and sometimes she'd forget who she had in and which stalls were full, you know. And I, I had a friend that I went all the way through school with, and it was just, it was one of her big things that she still was dealing with was that, that Miss um, Heffernan had locked her in that deal at about 9 o'clock in the morning and forgot her till 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you know. And she had never made a sound. We were all scared to death of that woman. Anyway, I went on to the second grade, and I had a wonderful teacher, and I continued to lead my class all the way through. That was not a problem. I was also the kind of kid that um, loved fairy tales. I just knew that someday my prince would come. Someday my prince would come, and he'd make everything okay, you know. Uh, I wasn't a beautiful little girl, you know, and but I just knew that when my prince came that I was going to look like Cinderella. And, um, and I just had a somehow hang in there until he came and every Saturday I'd sit down in front of the radio and I'd listen to Let's Pretend and you know and I'd read things like Rapunzel, Rapunzel let down your hair and she'd let it down in her prince and climb up her hair you know I must have hurt bad but I didn't think <laughs> you know um, anyway um, that's that so I just busied myself with waiting for my prince along with um, hunting for turtles and things like that I was a real nature girl, and I used to like to go out in the swamps and, and find little living things and fill up the back porch with them, you know, just kind of thing. Mom wouldn't let me have a dog, so I had everything else but I had lizards and chipmunks and squirrels and little fish of all kinds and frogs and turtles, and, uh, and I was kind of a grubby little girl because of this. You don't hang out in the swamps and look real good. Anyway, when I was nine... Mom, um, about two weeks before she had the baby, she decided to tell me that she was going to have this baby. And and I felt terrible because I had been the only child for so long. Um, and I thought somehow I had let them down, you know. Um, wasn't I enough? Um, and uh, and they just um, didn't seem to understand, you know. And so she went and she got this baby. And... Um, and I went down to the swamps while she was in the hospital, and I caught myself a real bad case of poison ivy, and I was completely blistered with the stuff when she came home. And she looked at me, and she said, and she hissed, actually. She said, don't you ever, I repeat, don't you ever get poison ivy again. And I never did. I never did. I, you know, fear. Fear, I, uh, and I was afraid of her. By the time I was 12, uh, I noticed that there was something different about mom. Um, she wasn't like the other kids' moms, and um, she had discovered um, alcohol and pills, and and I think that she crossed over. You know, I heard some, somebody in this program say that we're all born cucumbers, and some of us cross over and become pickles, and once you become a pickle, you can never be a cucumber again. Well, mom, mom became a pickle about the time I was 12. And, um, and, and she was definitely unusual. And, um, and it was one of her many bottoms. And, uh, I would come in after school, and sometimes she would be passed out on the floor, and she said, stomach viruses. She had a lot of them. And I got so that I didn't bring anyone home anymore because it was different bringing anyone into the house. She didn't know quite what to expect. And, um, and then when I was about 13 or 14, you know, the teenage rebellion comes in and you get, you know, a little wayward yourself. I did anyway. And I should speak for me. And uh, and she started saying, if it weren't for me, you know, if it weren't for you, this wouldn't be happening for me. And if I could just get rid of you somehow, um, it would it would be better for me. And you see, I didn't look like I was supposed to look because I, hi, you can't hear me? I'm really sorry. I don't know what to do. Use the microphone. Okay. Wow. 
me, she would be okay. And and I hadn't looked like I was supposed to. I was supposed to be this short, kind of chunky little blondish person, and this hair is not the real color, folks. And and this is by choice now. Anyway, um, my little sister was. My little sister had the blue eyes and the blonde hair, and uh, she was more on the heavier side, and I was uh, always afraid to go out in the wind. That's how thin I was, you know. like to be that way again, but anyhow, I never looked like I was supposed to, and then you couple this with it's your fault, and you begin to really feel real bad about yourself. My daddy kept her from sending me away, and that was that was real special, um, and I don't know what I would have done without him during those years. Anyway, when I was about 15 and they were gone from the house, I discovered the bar downstairs. You know, I had sworn that I would never be like my mom, that I didn't want anything that she had, that I that I really, truly hated her. And I, and I just uncorked that bottle and I drank like an alcoholic right from the beginning. You know, my friends were worried about me. I just kind of chuckled that it was that 69. And, um, and I, I got to the point where I was a blackout, I guess, almost a blackout anyway, and uh, and it made me feel just fine. I was out of control, but I felt in control, and all of those things that were a problem for me, the fear, being too tall, being too thin, all those things, the terrible twos, they all went away as soon as I uh, got that sense of ease and comfort. My friends were worried. They didn't want to go off and leave me alone in the house even. They were that worried about me because I was... I was out of it. But it became my solution, and I could hardly wait to do it again. And every weekend or, uh, you know, for the next year or so, I did that. I I became part of a group that went out and just had parties uh, every weekend, Friday and Saturday night, where it's just blackouts, even in high school. And then I got in my senior year to the point where if I had a big test or something, I would go down and I would take some of Daddy's boots just so I could make it to school and take that test. Needless to say that those grades that were always so good began to go down, you know, um, because I just didn't care as much anymore. And uh, and anyway, I was just waiting for my prince. I told you that. Um, along about my uh, the beginning of my senior year, my prince arrived. He was in disguise. I didn't recognize him at first. You know, um, and um, and I pulled into a parking lot at a fast food restaurant, and I went in to get some cigarettes. And uh, as I walked across the parking lot, I didn't know that he was saying to his friends, there she is, I'm going to marry her. He wasn't impulsive or anything. But um, I came back out, and he approached me, and he said, I've been around the world looking for you. And I said, yes, right. And I said some other things. And I went on back to my car. And I said to my girlfriends, we're going to wait until those guys leave. That guy's not well. And um, and they pulled out, and I thought it was safe. But he pulled into a side street, and when I got to my house, there he was, you know, and right in back of me. And he said, I'm serious about this. I've been, I've been looking for you. And I said, uh-huh. And... Um, he said he wanted to take me out, and I said, I'm not going to get rid of this guy unless I say okay. So I said, okay. When do you want to go out? He said, Monday night. I said, what time? He said, 8 o'clock. I said, fine. Monday night I left the house at 7.30. I had not ever done this to anybody. I had never stood anybody up in my life. And, uh, of course, I was done with men at that age anyway because the last guy had hurt me bad, and I uh, I was never going to get involved with one of you guys again. And... Uh, so he arrived at the house, and my mother told me that uh, he was dressed very nicely. She said, did you expect him? And I said, yeah, yeah, I did. And uh, she said, well, he was really upset, and he got in his car, and he took off two wheels. He took that corner. I hope he's okay. Well, I felt guilty, 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 bad. And, uh, and as luck would have it, he was a Marine station near my home, and his cousin was also stationed there, and... Uh, and I ran into him. He was dating one of my friends. And I said, oh, your last name is the same as, as his. Do you happen to be related? And he said, yes. And I said, would you tell him? Would tell him that I'm very sorry about what I did and that I would like to go out with him. And that was the beginning of our relationship. Um, he had a hatred for his father who drank too much 
I had a hatred for my mother who drank too much, and we used to talk about it. And uh, and I drank too much during our relationship, you know. And he made it possible because he was just enough older than me, and with the Marine Corps background there, um, he could get me a lot of alcohol, and that made me very happy. Well, by the end of my senior year, my folks were bound to determine that I was going to be college-bound, and uh, they'd saved all the money for it, and by golly, I was going to do this. And uh, and I had Bob giving me a diamond at the same time, and I couldn't tell them that I had a diamond from him, that I was getting married. And um, so um, I, I just went along with what they wanted. I got a job, though, because I was trying to save money for us, and... And I applied to college because my mother said I wouldn't get accepted. My grades had dropped so much, and, and I had to prove that to her. And so within a week, I'd been accepted and mission accomplished. So I just kind of forgot about it. I had no intentions of going. And uh, college started, and uh, and she was just really upset with me. And she took me out one day and bought me a bunch of clothes, and I should have smelled the rat then, but I didn't smell it. And she said, now you can either pay for all these clothes or you can go to college. Well, I chose the easier, softer way, and I went to college. And um, that put me down there, and I kind of looked around for my kind of people, and I found them. They were singing things like 99 bottles of beer on the wall. <laughs> and um, they, they were part of a sorority that I, they were, they were rushing me, and, um, and I fit in with them just wonderfully. And um, and I began to have a lot of blackouts, and I never got to any of my morning classes. And along about November 10th was the Marine Corps birthday. And, of course, I went to the Marine Corps ball with my Marine. And um, I was going to drink like a Marine. And um, after the 24th screwdriver, I don't remember much. Um, you know, they say, though, they said I was so funny. They said I danced with one shoe on and one shoe off. They said I was the life of the party. They said a lot of things, you know. But the only thing that I remember about it is that I had a son from that night. And, uh, you know, and back in the late 50s, you just didn't do that kind of thing, you know. Nice girls didn't do that kind of thing. And I began to feel that I was somehow bad, you know, really, really bad. I had let myself down in a lot of areas of my life. Um, and, uh, and so I got married. And at the time that I got married, I was angry. I was very angry with God because God had allowed this to happen. I was very angry with my husband-to-be because it was his fault and none of it was my fault, you know. Uh, I didn't take any of the blame for that myself. We got married and we didn't plan to stay together because we knew that we had to provide a name for our child. And the day that he was born, we looked at him and we both thought he was just about the cutest thing that we'd ever seen. And um, and we knew then that we'd stay together, if not for ourselves, for him. And, uh, and so that's uh, what we really kind of began a tentative relationship with. And... Uh, a few months after he was born, my husband got out of the Marines, and we went back to his hometown, where there were a lot of um, good-drinking people like myself, and I enjoyed his family. I really got along with his dad, who he didn't like, but I, I thought he was the life of the party. And, uh, you know, and I, and I just always enjoyed the uh, members of his family. They always knew how to have a good time. And, uh, and then I decided that if Bob would just go to college and get some sort of skill, everything would be okay. I was always looking for something, someone to fix me. And um, and so I I got him to go. My ambition was very low, but my ambition for him was, was much higher. And he did all the things that I thought he should do. And after a few years, he had that. And uh, he came home in a white shirt, looking just like he was supposed to, like my dad always did. And, uh, and it still didn't fix things. And I knew that wasn't going to work, and I thought, well, maybe if I just lived a little closer to my folks. And so we started plotting. We were in northern Indiana at that time, and my folks lived back on the east coast. And so we kind of put a dot on the map, and that put us in upstate New York, kind of in the mountains there. And so we started sending resumes to that area, and before long, we were, we were there in that area. I neglected to mention that we had another child in that span to another little boy, and uh, 
So when we moved up to New York, there were the four of us, and uh, and we looked good. I mean, we rented a cute little house by the edge of the road in front of an orchard with a brook behind it, you know, and, and just everything looked nice. We had a new car. We had a cute little dog. We had everything. We had it all, you know, except that I brought me with me up there, and um, and it wasn't real good. Um, and my drinking progress up there because um, that's, I'm not good in cold climates, folks, and... Um, and it was like 35 below in the wintertime, and I just really didn't know if I was going to live through it. And um, and then it was a town of 200 people, and they noticed these things. They noticed when you're taking big deals of beer in and out of your house, you know, and they mention it. You know, it's just really dreadful. Why don't they mind their own business? I'm a city person. I don't like you to get involved in my stuff. And uh, one Monday after an especially hard weekend, um, I went over to the neighbor's house, and I went to pick up the coffee cup, and that was the beginning of the shakes, you know, and, and I tried to pick it up, and I was so embarrassed. I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, and, and I retreated from that. I went home, and, and I had a dreaded fear that, that um, this was going to happen to me again and again, and uh, I had to get out of there. I knew that it was that small town's fault. So I told my husband if maybe we were in a warmer climate, and he was ready for that, too. So we um, we moved to Maslin, Ohio. Um, and that's back before they really cleaned up the steel area there. You know, you could, um, on a clear day, almost see your hand in front of your face. And, um, you know, and I think they've cleaned it up since we left town. But it wasn't, and, uh, it wasn't too good then. And my uh, older boy started school that year. We had a nice house again. We got a new dog. And we got a cat. And we got some new furniture, and we looked good. We looked good. And within a week after moving there, I realized that I brought me with me again, and um, and my drinking wasn't any better, and nothing was going right. And uh, and then one day I was just kind of sitting there watching TV, and uh, Boeing Wichita needs a few engineers. Oh, good. And so I told my husband, I said, here's the phone number. Give him a call. Well, we'd never been to Wichita. We didn't even know what it looked like. But he gave them a call, and they hired him over the phone. And uh, and we just kind of packed everything into the car with, and just took off for Wichita. And um, this is the same behavior. You can tell just kind of the way it's going. And uh, we got there. It's the Vietnam buildup, and uh, there's nothing to rent, absolutely nothing to rent. We're driving up and down the streets for two days trying to find something to live in. And... Um, Suddenly, I see some people moving out of a place, and um, and I asked them, did they own the house? And they said, no, they were renting it. So we rented their place as soon as they moved out, and it never even hit the papers. Um, and uh, and that's the only way we found a house. We were there for a year and a half. My drinking kind of leveled out there. I uh, hmm. I met a lot of people that drank iced tea while I was there, neighbors and stuff like that, and I tried to control my drinking. And... Um, and we did things like play Yachty. And after 18 months of Yachty, I was ready to move. I began to um, find things physically wrong with myself even, and I checked into a hospital, and my daddy came out, and he said, Bonnie, come home. And uh, I thought, I'm going home. I'm really going home. And uh, we put everything that wouldn't fit in a U-Haul trailer out on the front Yard and just kind of broad sailed it to get rid of it, and or yard sailed it, I guess is the more appropriate word. And um, and we set out for these coast. Well, we didn't get there. We got to um, some rolling kind of hills, um, and, uh, and nobody told us we couldn't put this trailer on the back of a compact car and it jackknife. Instead of heading east, we were heading west, and our stuff was all over the road. And uh, fortunately, from us. Um, God had been working even back then. Just the week before, they put guardrails up on these hills, and we didn't go over. The guardrail was badly dented from us. And I was just real real happy that that hadn't happened for us, uh, you know, because uh, it, it wouldn't have been special at that time to have, have killed off the whole family. We didn't know what we were going to do. Uh, we just really didn't know. Uh, we had no furniture left. We had no money left. We had two little kids, and... Uh, so we limped as far as we could, and we were talking with some people from Toledo this morning, and that was Toledo, Ohio. And um, and it was okay. We found a widower that had moved out of his house, remarried, and he 
He sold us all his furniture for $50. He didn't want it anymore. He'd married kind of a well-to-do lady. And uh, so we started over. We had all this stuff. Another dog, too. Uh, you know, and, um, and, and everything was going to be fine. Both my little boys were in school that year, and everything was going good until um, the neighbor decided that she'd fill me in on how um, the previous woman that lived in the house had died there. In real graphic language, she described to me things, and and it was not pretty. And I'm being a little on the depressive side, type, I kind of took all that stuff on and internalized it, and I became more and more depressed, and I became more and more suicidal, and I was drinking pretty heavy again. And so, I mean, what does an adult person do? They call Daddy, and they say, come get me, you know, and Daddy says, Okay. And um, so he came out, and along about now, he was just really fed up with my husband. It was his fault anyway. And he said, I'm taking Bonnie home. I really don't care what you do, but I'm taking Bonnie home, and I'm taking the kids, and you can come if you want to. And so he got me home, and he said, Bonnie, he said, um, you've been whipping yourself for years, you know, and um, it's time for you to stop. It's time for you to divorce this guy. He's not right for you. Pride came in. How could you tell your daddy that you made a mistake? I couldn't do that. And um, so I said, no, daddy, I love him. I don't I don't want a divorce. He said, well, in that case, we want you kind of close by, and we'll put a down payment on, on a house for you if you buy it in our neighborhood. So um walked down the street, you know, bought this house, and uh, moved in, and... Uh, and at that point, um, I began to have something with my mother I never had. She became my drinking buddy, you know. It was, it was very special, you know. I'd always wanted this close relationship with Mom. Every day about noon, she'd arrive with at least a gallon of wine. And, um, and I was drinking out of control. Um, and my poor husband would have trouble getting all the wine bottles crashed, you know, in time for the garbage man so they wouldn't be kind of all along the sidewalk, and he would take a hammer to them and bang them. Lest you think that this poor pre-Alanon person was really abused, I should tell you that um, every now and again I would suggest to him that maybe I'd be better off without him, that I maybe was going to leave, and he would say, our wife is a possession, bitch. You leave, and I'll track you down, and I'll blow your head off. And he used a few other words in there. And uh, I knew he meant it. He was an ex-Marine, and he was never emotionally well. And uh, so, so I just, you know. Anyway, my daddy didn't live too much longer. And about a year after I was back there, he died suddenly. And for me, that was the sun going out. I'd always counted on him. He'd always been there to pick up the pieces whenever they fell apart. He'd always been there to bail me out with money or whatever I needed. And he was no longer there. And six weeks later, my grandfather died, and he was the second most important guy in my life. And uh, and I stood out of his grave, and, and it was a cold, cold day, and I got pneumonia. And I was upstairs in this house, and I was withdrawing from alcohol, and I went into DTs. And uh, the family doctor was called, and he came, and he looked down at me, and he said, It's just like your mother. And that was the first time I'd ever heard anyone say that. But that's truly what I was, and it was, it was kind of upsetting to me. But he uh, prescribed something that he said would help me, and it did. It did. I just couldn't get enough of them. Um, and so I began to make the rounds of the psychiatrist because now I had a twofold problem, alcohol and drugs. Um, and, uh, and this became a way of life for me for the next 14 years. I did the, the uh, psychiatrist for three or four years. I used to wear rubber bands on my wrist so that I could remember what I was there for. I was there for drugs. And I couldn't afford to buy the prescription, so I just asked them what they had in samples. Just give them to me. I'll take them. And uh, and I did, you know, and I had a shoebox full of medication. And I'd get up in the morning and I'd go, well, how do we feel today? Well, maybe one of these, two of these, one of those. 
three of those. Okay, we don't drink before noon because if you drink before noon, you're alcoholic. Mom always told me that. And so um, this is the way it went. And I have three years that I have absolutely today no recall of. It's just terrible to um, to think about it. I don't, you know, my children were growing up and I don't remember it. We made another move because my husband thought that if I was away from mom, things might be a little bit better. So we moved about 24 miles. Not enough room. But anyway, um, and we moved into this house that had some funny-looking radiators in it. And I just hated it. And I knew that if I didn't have those radiators, that I'd be okay. And, um, and there was a house up the street that had this darling little tree out in the front yard. And, and it had kind of waxy leaves. And I knew if I looked out at that tree, I was going to be okay. So we, um, we sold that house. And we moved into the house with the tree. Well, you guys all know that the tree didn't do it for me, right? And so um, we were there for a while, and I thought, well, if I wasn't a total call away from Mom, I'd probably be okay. So we moved right inside the phone district there where I could get in touch with Mom on a daily basis. And, um, and I tried going back to school, and I tried doing a lot of different things. I tried church again. Church never really did it for me, um, and but I kept trying it. You know, the same actions produce the same results, and uh, and so uh, we finally we were running out of money again, and uh, Mom suggested, why didn't we move into her house? Goodness knows she had enough room. So there we were, right back with Mom. <laughs> Special. It was really wonderful, and um, and we realized at that point. Um, so it was it was a good move, and uh, and then I realized that it wasn't going to be okay. And I had left out something that I should have maybe mentioned. Um, during that time, even though I was heading to the bottom, um, I managed to be able to help little children that were in need. And I did some foster work for the state of Rhode Island. I worked with battered and abused children, and I had one little girl came in, and she was just a little darling. Well, she was really kind of a little monster when she came. Because she had always felt like nobody cared about her, I guess, and she would, she would literally climb the drapes, and after about a week of this, everybody always sent her away. And I got to the point where I said to her, I'm going to have to call the social worker. I can't deal with this. And um, she sat down, and all three years of her said, why can't anyone love me? I could be so good if anyone would just love me. And I started to cry. And I said, I will love you. And, you know, she was the best, brightest little girl I'd ever met after that. And she used to memorize James Whitcomb Riley poetry, Little Orphan Annie's Come to Our House to Stay. At three years old, she was really a brain. And um, she and I formed a, a real wonderful relationship. And uh, they took her away from me suddenly. Her mother got her uh, disease under control. And... Uh, and I lost her, and she said to me the morning she was leaving, you said you would love me, and you're sending me away, and I just felt awful doing that. And, and it broke my heart, and I said, I'm, I'm never going to do foster work again. Um, one of my psychiatrists had told me that I would be okay if I had a daughter. I should have mentioned that, too. And, uh, and I thought, well, I'll just adopt next time. So uh, I, had, I had been foster mother of the year, um, 1974 in Rhode Island for my work with this little girl. And uh, I got to Oklahoma, and I called after a while because I thought, well, I'll go back into foster work. Maybe maybe it will be okay here. And they said when I called, why don't you adopt a child? And I said, could I? And they said, sure. And I said, oh, okay, well, I don't want a baby. Babies are a lot of work. I like them a little bit bigger than that. And they said that's really what we need, is we need somebody for probably school-age children. Well, they did one of these home studies, you know, where they come into the house and they check and make sure it's dusted and the rugs look good and everything, you know. And we looked good. We looked good. And I was very calm. Before the social worker would come, I would always have seven, eight uh, Valiums and maybe, oh, two or three tumblers of wine, you know. And I was very relaxed by the time the lady would get there, you know. And... um and I told my children, don't you say anything. Don't you make any trouble or, or there'll be trouble for you. And I, and I'm, you know, I used to control through threats. And, um, 
So they put this little girl with us, and this little girl had, uh, oh goodness, this little girl had been through a lifetime in six years. She had, her mother had offed herself on drugs, and she had been put in a lot of adoptive homes, I mean pre-adoptive homes and foster homes, and, and she'd been brutalized in some of them, you know, and she was, she was a little burned out building by the time we met her. And, uh, and they put her with us, a family that was looking for the bottom. And, uh, and she came home, and the first night she just kind of disappeared. We didn't know why she didn't bond with us, of course, you know. And um, we went out looking for her about 9 o'clock at night. Where'd she go? And uh, we said to her, you know, um, after, after about nine months when the divorce was, I mean, divorce? The adoption was being finalized. Maybe she, if she didn't want this kind of a divorce thing, and, and maybe another family. And she had been through two pre-adoptive homes before us. And she had been told by the state that if she bombed out with us, that she was not going to be placed again. And she said, you know, uh, you weren't much, but you were good to me. She told me that years later. She said, you yelled and screamed at each other, but you were good to me. Uh, and she decided to stay. And we wondered why she decided, because she didn't seem to like us. But then she didn't like many people. And um, she she began to um, have some problems with drugs at eight. By this time, our older boy had discovered the wonderful world of chemistry, and he was out there doing a lot of things, and um, he was um, out of his mind most days, and we were real concerned for him. Um, and and we just kind of watched this family disintegrating like this, you know, and we uh, didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I thought I was just crazy. I didn't know about the rest of them. And uh, I, I had curtailed a lot of my drug usage. I was down to Valium and wine, and I thought that was a, a good area to be, you know. It wasn't a real major problem for me. And my major problem was uh, getting enough doctors to get enough of everything. And, um, and, and it seemed to be fairly easy to do. You just need to find alcoholic doctors, and um, they seem to understand real good. And I could always find them, the personality, you know, you know them. You know them when you see them. And uh, so along about um, 79, I guess, one of my boys had gone off to college in Oregon. My other son had joined the Navy. And um, I was working again, and, um, and things were not looking good. I would have to take a handful of drugs in my pocket just so I could make it through the day because I couldn't drink on the job. I could drink before the job, and I could drink after the job. But, and, you know, and I'd just eat the others during the job, and, uh, and my mind was completely gone, you know. I couldn't read and comprehend the directions on a Betty Crocker cake mix. This was pretty far gone. And I was doing technical work in, in a medical laboratory hospital thing, you know, and... Uh, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I thought I did. If you'd asked me, I would have told you I was doing a great job. I always thought I was doing a great job. It's just that nobody else thought I was doing a great job anywhere I ever was, you know, and nobody was ever sad to see me go. And this time I was bound to determine I was going to stay on the job. By golly, I was going to definitely stay no matter what. And uh, they finally gave me a choice of quitting or being fired. And so I quit, you know, because being fired is just about as low as you can go, and I didn't want that. And so um, I went home, and for me that was complete demoralization. Um, I had failed at everything that I'd set out to do, you know, just everything. And my little adopted girl was getting worse and worse and worse, and she jumped out of a tree and tried to kill herself, and we put her in a home to try and uh, find out if they couldn't help her psychiatrically and... Uh, Everything was looking real bad, and uh, so I just kind of sat there and uh, and proceeded to drink myself to the end. This is where there was, although I had had times when I could pull my act together and kind of get back out there and, and do it again one more time, this time there was no more doing it again one more time. It's, I, I kept the drape shut. I... Uh, it was like a tunnel with no ways out anymore. I just kind of kept going down further and further and further. And I was becoming more and more and more like somebody I didn't understand or, or didn't like. And um, and I just wanted to die. They say in the big book, you know, he will re- wish for the end and I wished for the end. I just didn't know quite how to do it. And then uh, one day... I watched a movie called I'm Dancing as Fast as I Can, 
And uh, she'd gotten off her, her Valium, and she was okay. And even at the end of it, I think she was drinking a little wine, and I thought, that's it. It's the Valium. It's really the Valium. If I can get rid of these things, I'm going to be okay. Well, I tried to get off them. You don't just put down Valium after 14 years and say, I don't think I'll take any of them today. <laughs> you don't. You get some strange side effects when you do this. And I began to have them, and I didn't really like experiencing them. And I thought, I'm, I'm really in trouble. I can't get off these things. So I took a handful of them. I took a handful of them, and I coupled them with uh, a lot of wine. And... Uh, and I hit the bed, and uh, and I slept for three days, and nobody cared. Bob didn't care because he just liked it. He said I was such a bitch. You know, he liked to keep me passed out, and if there wasn't any booze in the house, he'd go out and get it for me, you know. And, uh, and so he didn't care, and my little girl was in such trouble, she didn't care. And it had been such a miserable three years. At the time that I took that handful of stuff, I didn't care either because I had gotten to the point where... I uh, couldn't answer the phone unless I chug-a-lugged out of the vodka bottle. I couldn't answer the door unless I chug-a-lugged out of the vodka bottle. Now, see, I didn't realize what was wrong even. I couldn't put these dots together and get the whole picture. By golly, you're alcoholic. No, this didn't come. I don't know what kind of clues I needed, but I needed something more than what I had. And, um, and ladies drink like this, sure. And I had this little poodle that was hitting bottom with me. He had never lived in the same family, and so he, he just didn't know what that was, and he was very neurotic. And we would sit in the chair together in the dim, and um, somebody would knock on the door, and he would go, woof, 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 and I would go, don't bark. Don't bark. They'll know you're here, and they'll come in, and they'll get you and hurt you. And he'd go, mm-hmm. and, you know, and he was really strange, really a strange little guy. And um and so um I I had woke up after the three days and uh I thought by golly I could have killed myself. And I'm gonna have to do something. I'm really gonna have to do something. So I was drinking heavily and I thought I will call some mental health people. I will let them know that I'm going crazy and I need to go somewhere. And so I called and um they said, Do you think you might be alcoholic? And I said, No, no. Just having a little trouble getting things under control here. And if I could just go someplace, don't want to go to the state mental institution, though, but if I could just go someplace for a little bit, you know, so that I can get it all back, okay? And do you know of someplace like that? Oh, yes, they did. They recommended Country View. Well, they used to, I don't, I don't know if any of you have seen that ad from Tulsa there where there's this little house on the hill and the little butterflies and the birdies and it was just kind of flying around, you know, and come to country view, you know. And, um, and I thought, by golly, I'm going to country view. <laughs> I never thought I was going to go there. So I went out and took a look at the place, but I took my Alan on with me. I had my suitcase with me. I was staying. I had nowhere else to go. The withdrawal was in full force, and I was shaking all over, and, um, and my Al-Anon went out into the dormitory thing. Now, they didn't have a big barricade between us women and the men, and he said, you're not staying. You're not staying. The men aren't separated from the women. Now, I look like Broomhilda. I mean, you know, I was an alcoholic hitting bottom. I was about half this weight. I hadn't been eating in quite some time, and... Um, and I could have cared less about about having an affair with somebody. Come on, get real. I, um, you know, and um, I said, I'm staying. I'm staying. I have nowhere else to go. If I go home, I'm going to kill myself. And uh, so he finally kind of wandered off and, and let me do that. For him, this was a new low, though. He said to me later, he said, we've been crazy. We've been crazy for a long time, but now we're alcoholic on top of it. So... <laughs> You know, and so, because um, we're always we, you know, it's never I or whatever. And so I stayed, and I walked into the the room that day, and I came to regret almost instantly that I checked in. There was some wise guy sitting there in the lounge, and he turned to me and he said, Are you a junkie or a lush? And I'm a lady, by golly. You don't say things like that to me. And I said, It's none of your business. And I turned around and walked out, and I thought, He's offensive. And, you know, and um, he came to be one of my good friends. 
he really uh, was a nice guy. He was just making conversation. My withdrawal got so bad uh, that I couldn't remember anything. Whole chunks of my, the 14 years that I had, had been drunk, constantly, it was gone. I couldn't remember my kids from the time they were this big. I didn't remember my little alcoholic girl at all. I didn't remember the crazy little dog I'd left at home. Uh, I didn't remember any of the stuff that had happened in 14 years. And they told Bob, they said, she's not going to make it back. Her brain's gone. She's definitely gone. And uh, and it's a miracle. That's what I mean about the miracle. I could barely remember my name. He took me home one weekend, and I walked into this strange house, and I met this strange little dog and, and the little girl. They all acted like they knew me, you know, and, uh, and it was scary. It was scary, and I called my son off at college because I, I knew he was going to have this little voice when he answered the phone, and he said, hello, and I said, where's it gone? Where is it, you know, and, and I just kept hope is what I, all I had, hope. I was still alive. I had 25 days when I speeded up so fast from coming off everything that I didn't sleep. They said nobody ever died from lack of sleep. Oh, yeah? I'm going to be the first one. Mm -hmm. I got the treatment center cold on top of it, and I was just really one of the walking dead. And, uh, and I didn't hear much of anything they were trying to tell me. They didn't make me do a lot of the stuff that a lot of other people did because I couldn't remember my life. I didn't have to do an inventory, you know. <laughs> Good stuff, you know. Uh, so um, I just kind of hung around, you know. And uh, and they said that, you know, that it will get better. And there was a, I had a counselor who had never been drunk, and I didn't trust her. You don't trust people who didn't drink like you did, you know. And uh, there was a night nurse I used to stand and talk with because she had eight years sober in AA, and she had something special. She had found a God of her own understanding, and she talked with me about God, and and I just thought she was real nice. And uh, by the time I was ready, oh, I, after 25 days of not sleeping, you get a little strange. And I was laying on the bed one night, and... Uh, and I had a spiritual experience. And I didn't realize at the time what it was. I thought, I've really lost it now. And there was the force for good. And there was the force for evil. And they were fighting over me. And um, and it went on for quite some time. And I could sense that the force for good was was winning. And he turned and he said, it's going to be okay. And I knew who that was. You know, I knew who the force was. And um, I've heard since then, you don't meet God on the mountaintops. You meet him in the valley. And if there was ever a time that I was in the valley, that was it, you know. And I got down on my knees right after that, and I said, God, I don't know who you are or what you are or where you are even, but I sure do need you. And that was the first night I slept again. I slept for six full hours, and it was the beginning of my recovery. And they called Bob the next day, and they said, we don't know what happened for Bonnie. She's had some sort of spiritual experience, and uh, and she's going to be okay. She's going. To, we thought we were going to have to institutionalize her, but she's going to be okay. I got a Bridging the Gap sponsor, and the man that spoke last night said, you know, you have a lot of temporary sponsors and things like that. And God put a woman named Alma in my life, and she's at that big meeting in the sky now. But she had uh, about 10 years of sobriety when I met her, and she was a very kind, very loving woman. And she uh, started calling me when I was in treatment, and uh, she was there for me as soon as I got home. The phone rang, and she said, Hi. I'll be by to pick you up later. She didn't say, do you want to go to a meeting? Because I would have said, no, thanks. I don't feel good. But, um, and she was. She came by, and she did this for many nights after I got out of treatment. And I stood and I shook in those meetings. You know, I was afraid you would hate me because I was shaking so bad, you know. And, and uh, you didn't. You know, you said things to me like, let us love you till you can love yourself. Stick with the winners. They're the ones that know how to work this program. You know, um, do this one day at a time. This is all I was capable of, you know. I really couldn't. People, people who were reading the big book were beyond me. I would look in and it was just a lot of black and white. I couldn't understand what it was saying, you know. And, um, and I've come to notice that it's a very good book since then, but, um, 
But at first, it was just a little bit too advanced for me. And I started with, when I couldn't sleep some nights there, I still had a little sleep problem, um, I would read the stories in the back of the big book. And I would look for the things that I could relate to with those people because you can't talk to people always at 3 o'clock in the morning and it seemed like that's when I needed people. And, uh, and they were here. They were here in the big book. And uh, they gave me hope. They told me that it was going to be okay, you know, like the lady who said, and God gave me the keys to the kingdom. And God did. You know, for all of us that stick around here and, and have these things happen, we do have the keys to the kingdom. It's a real special way of life. And, um, and I met a lot of wonderful people that helped me to get where I am today. I met a lady that's over um, about the same length of time as I am. She had three months. She was the first person I asked to be my sponsor. There was something about her eyes. I thought she had it all. She said, no, I don't have enough time to be your sponsor. You need somebody else. And I was a little hurt by that, but she and I uh, walked through that first year together very closely because there were some things that I couldn't tell you people I had it all together, but I could tell her because she had days when she was just as bad as I was, you know, and I could relate to her. Anyway, when I had a year in this program, I had done my um, fourth step. My sponsor kind of gently nudged me into it because I was busy trying to understand it and read everything and intellectualize it to death. And uh, she said, just put something down on paper. And uh, so I, uh, one night after she said, pray for the willingness, I prayed for it at, at about 10 months. And, uh, and I just kind of um, began to see myself. I was up all night writing, and I had 26 pages by Dawn's Early Life. And, um, and it was just great. And I, and I, called her and we did that inventory together and she gave me a key ring that said a friend is someone who knows all about you and loves you just the same. And that's what a sponsor is. A sponsor is somebody that, that loves you just the same. And uh, today I work with my grand sponsor because um, things happened and, and she's always been there for me, you know, and my, my original sponsor's program was from her and, uh, and my grand sponsor and I have wa- walked together. She is truly my sponsor today. Um, we've walked through a lot of the fear, a lot of the recovery. She she knows all about me too, you know, and she loves me just the same. Um, she's a real um, service-oriented person. Uh, she's the delegate now to New York from Oklahoma. She was the state chairperson last year. She's really into service. And, and I've watched her grow and mature as a person, um, and that's done a lot for my recovery, to know that the promises are out there, you know, that if I keep coming back, that I can still have what she has. And at the end of a year, I stood and I cried at my first birthday because I got birthday cards that said, to a friend, and I hadn't been anybody's friend in so long. It was just so special to have a lot of people that loved me. Everything that was wrong in my life back um, in 1982 one day at a time is no longer like that. My relationship was a shambles, and I used to talk with Alma, my Bridge in the Gap sponsor, about leaving him, and she said, no, you're not going to drink today, but you're not leaving anybody. And um, and so I, I didn't, but I'm grateful that I didn't because uh, it's like um, the doctor alcoholic addict in the big book said, you know, the more that I focus on her good points, the better she becomes, you know. And as I started to do that, and as I started to focus on me, things took on a different light. And he went to Al-Anon, and he began to focus on him. Those dear people told him, let's not talk about her, let's talk about you. You know, because he always wanted to discuss me. And uh, and that got him looking at him. And uh, and in truth, there was plenty wrong with both of us that needed to be fixed. And, uh, and we've done a lot of work on ourselves. And today I can truthfully say that he's my best friend. You know, he's truly my best friend. Bobby, would you stand up so they can all see who you are? He's a wonderful guy. And um, and then uh, I had the two of my kids were alcoholics. And... Um, I don't know about my adopted daughter, how well she's doing. She skips to the beat of a different drummer. And uh, I think she's doing the best that she knows how to do one day at a time. I think that maybe she's staying sober. I don't know. I hope so. I really hope so because she has two little children. 
Um, my son is here today, and he, Steve, would you stand up? <laughs> no. <laughs> Thank you. He has 10 days of sobriety, folks. And I'm just thrilled and delighted that he could be here from Tulsa to be here this morning. Oh, and let's see, you know, my job, my career was uh, a real mess. Uh, I didn't think anything was going to be okay in that. And uh, we've done geographic since, since I got sober. I don't know. My Al-Anon got it in his blood, and I can't seem to get it out of him. <laughs> anyway, he moved me to Georgia at about five years in sobriety, and I thought, oh, not going to be okay. This program does transplant. It just takes time when you're a full-grown tree to put down some roots, you know, um, and be okay again. Um, and I celebrated my sixth birthday out there, and they wanted to have a big birthday for me, and I said, no, thank you. I ordered my chip from Hazleton, thank you, and I, and I did it myself. But by seven years, I was a little bit more into recovery, and they gave me a wonderful birthday in Savannah, and they were just real loving people, and I was glad to have known them all. And um, and then God brought us back to Tulsa, you know, and that is my birthplace. That's my rebirth place, and I've been reprogrammed by the good people of Oklahoma, and I just really feel more at heart like an Okie than anything else. And uh, so... Um, I, I got to celebrate a few more years out there and to be back with my sponsor again, who had grown, you know, um, some more while I was gone. And uh, and I've worked with a lot of people in the program uh, out there, too. But when I got back to Oklahoma, we bought a condo because I was going to try and keep him from rolling any further. And I, I said to him, I'll go back to Tulsa, gladly. But um, condos are tough to sell, and this will keep you in one place for a while. And... Um, and as I was walking down to the swimming pool one day, I met this lady that I was really attracted to, and she said to me, well, what do you do? And I said, oh, what I'd really like to do is something I did years ago. I was a histology technician. And uh, and I threw it away, you know, and I told her a little bit about what happened to me. Well, as luck would have it, or as God would have it, she's a histology technician, and she's a supervisor. And within a day, she offered me a job. And I hadn't worked in that field in 12 years, you know. And for the last four years that I was in Tulsa, I was a good histology technician. I knew what I was doing. I um, showed up every day, you know, ready for work. And uh, and I was just really, it built my self-esteem. It made me feel okay again, you know. And and it, it brought back a lot of the stuff that I, I thought um, would never be okay again. I moved to Phoenix, and I thought, well, I don't know if I'll be able to get a job out here, you know. Well, it was no problem at all. I uh, got an on-call job for a while. Um, Within a short time after I got out there, Bob had taken a job out there with a new company and um, as a plant manager, and I I thought I'm probably just going to have to hang around the house. But the on-call job became available, and I took that, and I started doing that, and then... I had put in some applications, but not at this big hospital. And uh, it's the largest hospital in Arizona, Good Sam, downtown. And they called me one day, and they said, we need a histotech, and we've been searching the valley for one, and uh, we hear that you're looking for a job. Would you come in for an interview? And I said, okay. And I went down, and I never had to fill out an application for them. They offered me $3 more an hour than I'd been making in Tulsa. And they said, would you like to come and work for us? Would I? I'd love to. I'd really love to. You know, and um, and it's great, you know, to come from where I've been to working at the biggest, you know, most prestigious hospital in Arizona is, is for me, just full recovery one day at a time, you know. God, if you let God come into your life, he will do so much for you. You will be amazed before you are halfway through. You truly will be, you know. I work with a God box, which is something that um, I learned about early in my program. And whenever anything is real heavy, I give it to God. You know, I just make a presentation to him and I say, here it is, God, I can't handle it. You know, it's yours. And then I say, let me know if I'm taking it back. Well, usually five minutes later, I'm taking it back, and God always does his job. He always lets me know. 
And then I just keep turning it over, and I had something painful within the last couple of weeks that I had to do that with, and it, and it works the same way every time I do it, you know. Um, now, for those of you that haven't tried it, I recommend it highly. It's, it's a good way, and uh, the program is, has changed everything, just everything. My mother's still drinking. I should mention that. She's maybe one of the oldest living alcoholics. She's got a wet brain. She's got a wet brain, you know, and, and it's real sad, but for me... It's a message, you know. If I don't want to end up like her, one day at a time I have to keep coming back. This is a journey, not a destination. I'm never going to recover except one day at a time with God's help. I'd like to close with something that um, that I heard early in my sobriety that means a lot to me. And it says, God, don't let me see me as my friends see me, for this is more than I am. Don't let me see me as my enemies see me, for this is less than I am. Let me see me as you see me, for this is just as I am. Thank you.